Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. Multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, as comic book entrepreneur Henri Copen joins us to talk about his popular Yisu Shin series, the story of the Korean naval commander who saved his people from a Japanese invasion in the late 1500s as well as what it's like to be an independent comic producer in the time of shuttered comic book stores and a world without conventions. It's a good story. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, Batten down the hatches and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 184, back in the lovely backyard. Ohio is treating us with a nice breeze yet again. Yes, indeed. Not too bad. No. We dig it. Thought it was gonna be horrendously hot. Instead, it's only hot. So that's still be not... days, but if you can get yeah. all the way to July. Not we all know October is going to suck, so once you yeah. accept that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to have the epic Henri Compan with us, so check out the episode starting soon. But before we get going, let's say a few thank yous. Today we got a... Okay, so let's start with the we no longer have sponsors part of the gig. Absolutely. Um, or rather, we do and we don't. So one last time we have as a sponsor. This has been a long time. They have been so awesome to us. We love them on it. O-N-N-I-T.com for the last time, our official sponsor. Since almost the beginning. Yeah, all good things come to an end. I mean, at one point it makes sense, like from a business standpoint, it makes sense because you can only reach the same audience so many times. And realistically, we are going to have only so many new people who start listening in. So, you know, I get it. And uh, they have been more than generous in supporting us over the years. So deep thank you to Onnit. Their products are still awesome. So if you guys want to check them out at Onnit.com, that's always a sweet thing to do. But one door opens... Yeah, so so we got somebody this time. They are not exact. I mean, they are sponsored and they are not. But in any case, they sent us their free products, which is always a plus. We like that part. Yeah, nobody's got any eyebrows at my house now. (laughs) Yeah, because the (laughs) the new sweet folks supported us today with their glorious free products are the folks from Manscaped.com. We seem to have a fairly good record with that particular area of the human body because Manscaped is all about your balls. If you don't have balls, I think you can still use it in particularly sensitive areas because Manscaped provides a excellent trimming experience through an elite... We call it a razor? Is it a razor? I what would call it a razor for sure. It's a trimmer, I guess, an electric trimmer, something like that. And, and, and I'm not going to give too many details, but uh, according to uh, uh, some people I know, so I'm talking for a friend, I'd say, yes. um, 
it could be called the humanscaper. Yeah, because it's not just for men, I would say. You even can get that bush under control in more than one way. So Yes, it's uh, it's an interesting experience. I tried, and I, I went a little too deep too quick. The good news is that you can't really nick yourself because they... You tried. figured out the technology good enough that they you don't cut yourself. But suddenly I was like, oh, my God, I look like a porn star now. Because it's going to take months for that complete. to grow back. Yes, it was fairly interesting. <laughs> well, it's got a light on it, too, to help you guide your way through the um, nefarious thatch of thickness. Yes. So for all your trimming needs... <laughs> Please check out these sweet folks who sent us the goods. They even have it, you know, their technology is water resistant, so you can do this in the shower. I am quite impressed. They've got uh, an impressive sort of aftershave to keep everything in order, some uh, calming talc powder, and the best part is the uh, fantastic Manscaped drawers that uh, oh, yeah. keep your uh, unprotected areas from, from chafing. chafing. Yes, they have that too. And they have the greatest slogan ever called Your Balls Will Thank You. Oh my God. Which... Embossed in gold when you open the box up. Yes, so. that's quite impressive. So <laughs> for those of you guys, if you want to check it out, the co- discount code is fairly simple because it refers to our podcast. It's Taoist with a T. T-A-O-I-S-T. And that's a manscaped.com. And you get 20% off and free shipping with the code Taoist. Have no fear. So check them Make out. Make area clear. <laughs> I like you're, you're a poet <laughs> as usual. Uh, big shout out to grasslandbeef.com, oh. who has been awesome to us in sending us their goods. So that's also appreciated. Now, since we are basically operating on a $0 budget other than what you guys contribute to us, it would be extremely sweet. Well, actually, first, Richard, a good idea, which is we're going to say thank you to the sweet folks supporting the podcast right up front, not at the end by the time nobody listens no more. So let's go screw up a few people's names. Before you get started, I have a feeling that um, many people may have no idea this even happened. Right, that we actually thank the people. Yeah, because after the end of the show. But yeah, we'll do it up front. Here we go. Let the pottering begin. So we got Christopher Parcel, Jonathan Waterloo, Stephen McKee, Thomas McNamara, Frederick Hahn, uh, Jürgen Ajek, Andre Garapetian, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunik, Thomas Robinson, Aistis Juskas, Nicola Toni, Edward Feldman, Richard Viola, um, I'm fairly sure in US they pronounce it viola or something evil like that, but that's the color purple in Italian, it's viola, so I stick with it. So, Richard Viola, Jacob Allen, and Greg Lurie. You guys are awesome. Infinite thanks for supporting us. Um, th- if you feel like you're in a generous mood and you want to join these sweet folks, the way to go is paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. PayPal.me, first initial of my first name, the letter D, and then my last name, B-O-L-E-L-L-I. That's the way to go. And or the other way is uh, using our Amazon link, the dbamazing.com, again, dbamazing.com. Whatever you guys buy, Amazon give us a cut. So that's, if you're shopping on Amazon anyway, and I know many of you are, please use our link. doesn't take much to make it happen. You can almost hear Jeff Bezos weeping. Yes. 7% coming away. Yes. Costs so, you nothing extra. Nothing comes from you. It all comes from him. And that's a great way to help us out. So, you know me, Space Nut. I love my star parties. Last night, Jupiter and Saturn are next to each other in the sky. 
It's always a draw. People always love it. Star Party this Saturday obviously canceled and probably canceled for a, a long, long, yeah. long time. And we've got this comet rising. Mm-hmm. So I've been excited. I've gone out trying to see it in the morning, but over in Ojai, we get that marine layer in, and it just skunked us several days in a row. So I missed like five days of it. And I was like, oh, it's killing me. So last night, it's more of an evening thing as well now. And um, Gretchen came up with the genius scheme to go to where the Reagan Library is because it's actually up high. So it gets you higher up on the horizon because you guys are screwed here you're just not going to see it with this giant wall here so all excited been prepared all day everything's set we know we're going to see we're going to all picked out and i left my binoculars sitting on the kitchen table so this one does require some binoculars to see it better you can kind of see it so we drove all the way into thousand oaks all the way simi valley up to the reagan library and as i got there i was like I seem to have forgotten. I, I think something. those binoculars are sitting on because I went in for a little road bevy to uh, yeah, have yeah, on the yeah. way. In the end, it was still amazing, just because as it got darker, it was like it looks like there's something there. Right. And as darkness kind of came in, even with the light pollution, it made a pretty epic look. And so we're only slowly introducing ourselves. We'll do the naked eye, and tonight we're gonna hit it again with telescopes and binoculars. Okay, let's so. uh, remember them. Yeah, this isn't going to be too far in the future, so even if it's towards the end of the month, it'll still be visible and it'll be climbing higher up towards the Big Dipper every night for the next two weeks at least as it totally heads out on its 6,000-year voyage till it comes back again. Don't forget your binoculars this time. They're already in the car. Okay, good. <laughs> anyway, on we go. That's it. Sweet. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Let's roll. Other episode of the Drunken Taoist to do. Today we do something uh, unusual because we normally always record in person, but between COVID and geographical distances being hostile to in person meetings, we are dealing with a Zoom recording. Our guest today, before I jump into any questions, Mr. Henri Compan. Pleasure to have you, man. I'm so glad you can join us. It is a tremendous honor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super happy we got to connect. Uh, you are, you said, I, I want to say outside of Chicago? Yes. Yeah, I'm, yes. I'm in the Chicago, uh, uh, in the Chicagoland suburbs. So about like maybe about 40 minutes from the city. Perfect. So the wonders of technology allow us to connect. Absolutely. Uh, sweet. Now, all right, I got, uh, how was that, a month ago, two months ago, something like that, I got to be made aware of your work, and uh, it's phenomenal. So ever since I got the chance to check it out, I was like, oh, man, this would be a fun podcast. We can get on a call and chat things out, and just to give people a bit of an intro, Um Andre has a couple of phenomenal, I even hesitate to just call them comic books because, you know, the way you collect them also as graphic novels is fantastic. And, but, you know, you work in comics. That's what you have, that you have been doing in recent times on a full-time basis. 
Walk me a little bit through your journey. Now we'll chat about the specific works you do in a second, but just kind of to get you through through the journey that led you to do this for a living these days. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, before I go into it, I just want to thank you for not only having me on the show, but for all these wonderful compliments about my work. And I look forward to telling you everything about it. So, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I've been working in comics now for about 10 years, uh, full time. And, uh, I got my start right out of college. Actually, mm-hmm. I was in college. And mm-hmm. what happened was, is, uh, I saw one of my friends, uh, that I was taking classes with, uh, he decided to start his own comic book company. He was actually doing it. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to try and do the same thing. You know, I learned a lot uh, in, in the sense that, you know, I, I gained the experience and sort of the direction that I um, eventually would uh, end up on. But it was a total disaster. <laughs> and a lot of it was my fault. You know, it's just it, it's part of the experience. I mean, you can't. Uh, you can't do everything right the first time you do it. Of course. And it was a great learning experience, and I, I got myself into a little bit of debt. So after it failed, um, I decided the first thing I was going to do was settle my ties before moving forward with anything. So I, 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 had, a, I had a day job, and so I kind of I focused on that. And in the meantime, I really wanted to uh, put a stronger focus on what my, my next book would be because I wanted to do something that would set me apart from my contemporaries as much as possible so that I could give something new and, and fresh to to the comic book industry. That took a lot of time, um, you know, just kind of not only coming up with the topic, but also, you know, focusing on the research, focusing on uh, really educating myself about how to make comics. Because uh, when I when I graduated from college in 2005, comics were not taken very seriously as like a profession. Correct. Um, it's only been very recently that, you know, comic book creation has been considered to be more like ser- has been taken more seriously. And now there there's more tools and options available in terms of like learning how learning the trade, learning how to do things. And I had to bootstrap everything. So while I was working, I was also saving up money, which would eventually allow me to like build out my art team and uh, and do everything. And yeah, um, sure enough, I, I figured out what, what I wanted my book to be about and we'll, we'll get into that. And, uh, the rest was just basically continuously making one mistake after another mistake and, you know, figuring out how to bounce back and how to, you know, get stronger and, and learn from my mistakes. But that's also what I find super interesting. I mean, there are many, many things I find interesting in this, but like one of the things that I think is applicable to anybody, even the, some of the people who listen in who maybe have zero interest in comic books specifically, or in graphic arts or in art period, that process that you just described is an interesting one because what you did is you didn't start and get a job with like you know within the comic book industry there are a few of the big publishers that are very well established they have their distribution done they have a ton of employees and all of that you didn't go that route which is the more normal route you know you you go through the guys who are already doing it in a big way and you just end up being a cog within their machine you ended up going independent which is of course monstrously i mean it's both exhilaratingly awesome and super scary hard at the same time because 
the beautiful thing of being independent is that you are your own boss and you have a certain degree of freedom that you're never gonna have as uh, one person within this giant machinery but at the same time what you also don't have is the support of a giant machinery behind you and everything is you and the guys that you assemble as part of your team all the money comes out of your own pockets so it's a it's a scary process because as you say you know you learn a lot by making mistakes but each mistake you make is money (laughs) it's time and money that you know if you don't have the budget of a big company that tends to run out really fast so that process that i think it can be applied to anything not just comic books but to really any field that one is interested in of like how is it possible to go about in the independent route and create something for oneself that's that's applicable to many 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 different ideas businesses and everything else and so that aspect the fact that you just decided i have these ideas i want to put them on paper i have a vision of what i want to create let's go and make it happen it's uh, in some ways perfectly in line with podcasting, right? Which is podcasting. I mean, the difference is podcasting is not expensive. You know, podcasting, you grab a microphone, you plug it into a computer, boom, off to the races you go. You don't have to inve- invest massive amounts of money. With comic books, there's the person writing. Well, in this case, that helps because it's you. So that's a good start. But then you have the person doing the coloring. You have the artist. You have the printer. You have the distributor. You have, you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of the roles involved. There's a lot of different people that even as a small thing, like even when you start small, you still need to involve a whole bunch of people. That adds up quick, money-wise. And so the idea that you're there working at your J-job and, you know, saving nickel and dimes in the hope of pushing this vision forward, that really speaks volumes about how badly you got to want it, you know, because it's just so much easier to get some whatever job, you get your guaranteed paycheck at the end of the month, and that's it. So, so tell me a little bit about that part, I guess, the desire, you know. Clearly, this is something that you didn't wake up one day and said, I want to do comic books just because you need, you need to have an insane strong desire because the number of obstacles you're going to run into is never-ending. And so if you are easily discouraged, you're going to get crushed about three days into it. And instead, you know, in order to have the staying power to last through this learning process for so long... You really need to want it. Um, is that something you have always wanted, like kind of since you were a kid type of thing? Is that something that where did sort of the love for the art, the comic books, the graphic novel, where, where did all that come from? Oddly enough, it came from martial arts. And this is something that's kind of strange that I've noticed, uh-huh. at least where I live. I don't know. If, uh-huh. I can't speak for other parts of the world, but I noticed that every time I see a martial arts school, very close by, either within uh, within walking distance or across the street, there is a comic book store. Oh, that's hilarious. So I remember when I was a kid, uh, my we had neighbors and uh, they they used to pick on me. And uh, my father, he decided to sign me up for, for Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. I eventually, I, I faced my, my bullies and I, I ended up beating them up. And um, they're, they're... That's a sweet, <laughs> nice feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. And I was still a white belt when it happened. Right. After that, the neighbors, they stopped picking on me and we became friends, you know, which is also was also great. And I kind of, my dad was worried that I would lose interest in martial arts. 
And he always knew that I loved Spider-Man because I, I loved uh, the, the TV show mm -hmm. and the toys and everything. So he would always treat me that if I went to Taekwondo twice a week, and then he would take me to the comic book store afterwards. Right. And so uh, that's that's really what what kind of happened. My dad really fostered that that love and and everything and, and comics and, and, you know, really helped uh, me get into the hobby. And my sister did, too, because my sis my sister is an avid comic book fan and she was always really supportive of um, my decision to pursue this as a career. And it's funny because as you were as you were talking, I was thinking about something my mom once told me. When I was graduating high school and I knew that I, I wanted to get into uh, comics and entertainment, we were driving one evening and she was saying, well, you know, this field is very hard. And I looked at her and I said, Mom, tell me what field isn't hard to get into. Yeah. You yeah. know, anything you pursue in life, there's no easy route. There's, you know, some areas might have uh, more stability. Maybe some areas offer better uh, incomes mm -hmm. after shorter periods of time, you know, but there's no such thing as, uh, as, as easy. And, you know, like even Bruce Lee said, you know, don't pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to, to endure a very difficult one. And uh, comics is absolutely a very, a very brutal game. Not a lot of people have the ability or the, the fortitude to, to stay in it for the long haul because it's so volatile and, and there's not a lot of, there's so much, there's so much stuff out there and everybody is uh, competing to get their, their stuff just to be seen and just getting to a point where you're like, Okay, I'm I'm getting I'm I'm getting by is a huge victory. It's already mm -hmm. a huge massive step in the right direction. And, you know, it's I I know a lot of creators that uh I've been I've been interviewing them on uh on my own show. They they a lot of these guys have to to work side jobs or they have other, you know, full-time positions or they have spouses that handle things and, you know, but the thing that I think unites us all is that we have this desire to bring our stories to the world. And it's certainly not a, a one man show. You know, mm -hmm. I, uh, you were mentioning earlier, like, uh, you know, the, the roles that are uh, involved. The, the most important one, in my opinion, is, is editorial. Right. Because yeah, uh, editor ed editorial right. not only makes sure that you're 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 covering all your bases in terms of, you know, spell checking and things like that, but it's also... A matter of flow, making sure that the the final presentation is going to meet the 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 qualifications of a of a professional looking um, product, and you know that's something that my partner has instilled in me and has taught me how to do, and has been doing for a very long time. So before we go any further, let's uh, uh, make sure we give a shout out to your show. I know you're doing it as a podcast, right? As and also as a YouTube channel, correct? It's actually just a YouTube channel for now. I'm not as sophisticated okay. on the podcast from, but okay. it's called Onward with Henri. Um, mm -hmm. And if you go to YouTube, uh, you know, you can just type in Onward with Henri. You'll see a bunch of episodes. I have two different uh, types of things I do on the show lately. Ever since the pandemic broke out, um, I've been interviewing different creators uh, within the field, which has been uh, an incredible experience for me because I get to learn from my contemporaries and, and also people that I idolize in, in the field. And, and I feel like it's helping me uh, very much with my development as a, as a creator. 
But when the convention circuit uh, resumes, I have another type of show that I do that's more episodic that kind of follows my journeys ac- across the country as I, you know, go to different conventions and sell over there and, and do my thing. So, yeah. Cool. I'll make sure to put a link in the episode notes uh, for the YouTube channel. So if people want to check it out, easy way to find it. So tell me a little bit about this process of going independent. You know, first thing is, you know, you have this vision of something that, you know, did you always think comics? Did you think movies? Did you think writing novels? You know, clearly you like storytelling. That seems safe to say. As far as the format of comic books versus some of the other one, is that something you kind of uh, feel that, you know, due to your childhood passion, you naturally gravitated toward? That was sort of always number one? Or were you thinking some of the other storytelling forms and then comics sort of popped up as the leading candidate? Or or was it always comic for you? Well, it's interesting because... Um deep in my heart it was always comics but okay. because comics is have always had this sort of like juvenile mantra to them mm-hmm. sort of it almost seemed kind of daunting to go down that route until i really started to uh, discover how much more was being done in comics aside from just your basic superhero story and right. you know it's really the work of so many different uh, creators like Alan Moore and Will Eisner and, uh, you know, Joe Kubert and, and countless others who have, Frank Miller, who've just done so much stuff that uh, has really shown just how expansive and just how much you can do with the industry. But, uh, you know, I've always just been uh, uh, interested in storytelling in general. I mean, my real passion would, I guess, would be film. I always wanted that ability to fill an entire theater um, with with people and, you know, have my movie on display and, you know, have mm-hmm. the big effects in the background and everything. Um, but I think that that's a grand vision. And I think what's really wonderful about comics is um, it really gives you the opportunity to kind of set the stage for those kinds of things because you don't have you don't have to raise that kind of the same kind of budget. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Shooting a movie, you're talking about tens of millions yes, or something. Exactly. Especially the kind of stories you like to tell that yes. are very elaborate with grandiose scenes and so on. Yeah. A comic book, it's expensive, but it's nowhere near what uh, what creating a movie would. So yeah, that's something that's awesome in itself that you can give rise to your imagination in a way that you would never be able to pull off in movies unless you have a giant studio behind you and that even if you do one doesn't mean they do the next whereas in this case you know you can keep production on in a much uh, the, the train from your head to the final product is much quicker than uh, so that yeah that that helps a lot the, you know, one thing that I noticed that, um, and you schooled me a little bit on this, you gave me some good pointers on this stuff and then made me understand, uh, because, you know, I didn't grow up in, I didn't grow up in US, so I wasn't exposed to American comic books that much. But growing up in Italy, there was a very strong tradition of, uh, you know, there were like two, three, four comic books that I would get every month, religiously. And they had they were series that had been going on since the 1950s or something, right? And they just they were these never-ending series, and and they didn't do much the Marvel stuff or the superheroes. They were, you know, one of them was set in the old West. It was all a cowboy and Indians kind of story, 
another one was you know there were a few that were more uh, really did not fit the superhero genre at all was a different thing so that in itself was different and the other thing that kind of shocked me when you were showing me how it works in us is how much uh, thinner the comic books are here you know like you said typical is what 24 pages something like that the, the standard's usually 32 because what what publishers books. try and do that they want to have advertising Sure. Um, to, to help offset their costs for, for printing. And then that way yeah. they're making money as soon as they get into the distribution of it. But I think now because the price of comics have gone up so exponentially, uh, you know, the, the amount of advertising has gone down. So the sizes of the comic books have gone um, a little bit shorter. Like usually typically a story is anywhere from 22 to uh, as much as uh, 28 pages um, on just like your standard single issue book, but sometimes you have giant size books. I mean, it's really just a matter at the at the virus, sure. Yeah, thanks to technology, you can pretty much uh, do anything now in terms of the length of your story. There's always some way to fill up the page space. So, because <laughs> I was always, you know, growing up with that model, and that was really all I knew about comic books were those kind of series, and they were easily hundred, hundred twenty pages every month. So it's a lot of material. Now, granted, again, this was a big company in Italy that had several of these series going on at the same time. They had clearly they were hiring different artists so that you don't have the same people trying to finish one series and jump on to the next one and produce one every month. You know, you have different writers and different artists who are all getting it done. Um, but it was still like, you know, Story-wise, I feel that it allowed the creators to go so much to such a degree of depth because they could go so heavy into it. You know, 24 pages, you basically have, what, three scenes, four scenes, like something fairly quick and uh, and you have to wrap it up. And then with a cliffhanger that makes you want to get the next one and then you show another. But like there's... You have to have such a tight storyline in order to make sure you don't. You have no pages to waste because there are so few. So it's, uh, but it's interesting. It's a different way. It's a different way of expressing oneself. But is it's interesting to see how the you know the space constraint may modify the storytelling a little bit. Well, it's funny you mention that because I find it um, the one thing I've learned over the years is it's funny how much space we think we need for scenes right you can fit in a typical issue of our books we, we have maybe about anywhere from eight to ten scenes mm-hmm. and oh wow and it, it all depends on what you choose to do in these scenes and what kind of effects you want to have and one of the things that i think is really unique about my uh my experiences is that i've i've not only learned just simply about the writing aspect, but because I am self-publishing, and I think this is something that can be said about anybody who's just doing this themselves, you're not just focusing on your script. Your script is, your writing is like maybe about 20% of your job. You're you're mainly focused on the artwork and actual the visuals of your story and focusing on how to make that interesting because you're very you're very right about that you know every issue needs to end on a cliffhanger and get people going and the hardest thing to do is those issue ones they're always right. the most difficult it's yes. just like a pilot episode of any tv show yeah because you have to introduce <laughs> the characters the readers are not already familiar with them it's uh, it's a tough gig for sure so let's jump into the some of the specifics in that regard 
one thing that I love, by the way, and I wrap the discussion about space is how something that other people do, of course, but like I got to read some of your work in a collected form, you know, after you have published uh, X number of specific issues of the comic book, then you put them together in like one bigger graphic novel, which is awesome because like as soon as I get to the end of one, I'm like, okay, what happens next? And I have the next one. I don't have to wait three, four, six, whatever many months till the next one. So that, that part is always nice. Okay, so let's jump into some of the specific of the stories that you tell. Uh, you have one series, that's your main one, and then you have like a family-related one. So let's, you know, yeah, yeah. turn the mic to you so you can describe those stories. My signature series um, and the one I've been working on uh, for the last decade is called Yisun Shin. And uh, it is a trilogy of books which follows the story of uh, a Korean admiral who actually existed. And he successfully defended Korea from Japanese invaders in the 1500s. The late 1500s, Japan was united under the rule of uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. And he was a very ambitious warlord. He was so ambitious that uh, he started out as just being a, a common soldier. And in the honorific system in Japan, Basically, going up in class was an extremely hard thing to do. You had to really prove yourself. And uh, Hideyoshi was uh, extremely ambitious. He proved himself. He, he was a bloodthirsty maniac in the battlefield, and he, he killed many people, and he eventually rose to the rank of not just the top samurai, he became the warlord of Japan. Mm -hmm. He decided after he united Japan that uh, he wanted to take over the world. He was just completely, he was a conqueror. Right. He staged this huge invasion of Korea, but Korea was not his main goal. Korea was just sort of like a staging point. He was, mm -hmm. His real goal was to go into China. And uh, the book doesn't really focus on Hideyoshi, but I always like to mention, uh, it starts with Hideyoshi because I think understanding his ambition is really what allowed this war to, to, to take place to begin with and, and just showed the f ferocity and the uh, intensity of, of the Japanese uh, samurai. And they were very, very strong soldiers. I mean, this is, these guys were like the stormtroopers of the 1500s. They were the strongest warriors in all of Asia. They, had uh, training and experience because they were fighting each other for a hundred years. Korea had no, they were not ready to, to take on the samurai. They, it was the hermit kingdom. They, they were very peaceful. They didn't bother anybody. They had some problems up north with Jurchen nomads who were mm -hmm. basically, you know, just trying to attack certain uh, small territories, but nothing, nothing so serious as, you know, an invasion or anything like that. The Koreans always saw themselves as being um, sort of like protected by the Chinese, uh, the Ming Dynasty. They had no idea that anything like this was possible. And what made Yi Sun-shin such a, a great hero was the fact that he was wise in, in the sense that he paid attention to what was going on. When he, when he became Admiral, which is a story in and of itself, the, one of the first things he realized was that he needed to really fortify his troops because he knew that um, there was no way uh, they would be able to, to fight the Japanese on land. The Japanese were not only experienced in, in combat, but they also had these arquebus rifles that they got from the Portuguese because right around this time in history, Portugal was coming to Japan to spread Christianity. 
But Hideyoshi, the only reason why I allowed him to come in there was because they had advanced weaponry and they were trading. And the, Jap- uh, the Portuguese, they wanted to spread uh, Christianity and the Japanese wanted their technology. And uh, it, was a, it was a nice trade for, for, for Japan. And um, when, when they came into Korea, the, the Koreans had no idea what was, what was coming. And uh, the only one who knew was Yi Sun Shin. And uh, he, he was able to uh, gather intel that, that told them what was, what was going to happen. What, a, a year prior to invading Korea, what Japan did was they actually sent Archibus rifles to the Korean king as a sign of saying to them, we have these powerful weapons. We suggest that you surrender. Right. right. And the king didn't even care. He didn't even want to fire the gun. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't, he, he, his uh, advisors told him these guns, they just, they're, they're used for killing birds. That's it. They're not, they can't kill people. Right. right. And uh, one morning in, in, in May, I think it was April actually, uh, 400 Japanese battleships showed up on um, the shores of Busan and they just, tore into the town and they killed so many innocent people. They burned down villages. They started, you know, raping women, enslaving children, killing elderly people. And the military, they were powerless to stop them. They didn't have the, the weaponry. The, um, they didn't have the experience. They'd, they couldn't do anything. Um, but Yi Shin was ready for them. And when he finally uh, engaged the Japanese in combat, it had been a point when the Japanese had... Uh, already established a strong foothold in Korea. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the only way he would be able to uh, counter-strike because he had to monitor their movements. And every single time he engaged them in combat, he had to, um, he was not only outnumbered 10 to 1 against them um, in pretty much every skirmish, but he had to make sure that his campaign would uh, pay off exponentially for the Koreans because if he lost one battle, it was just, it was over for Korea. Mm-hmm. And um, that's exactly where our first issue starts off. We jump right into the action with the Battle of Akpo, which was Yi Shin's first victory and Korea's first victory in this war. I mean, they were getting their asses kicked for like a good like month. And in this battle, what was so amazing about it was he didn't lose a single soldier. He was up against, he had 15 ships and the Japanese had 50. And by the end of that battle, he killed over 4,000 men and didn't lose a single soldier. I mean, a couple guys got nicked and, you know, some guys got shot um, in the arm or whatever, but no one, no one died. And that's, that's, a, that's a, an amazing feat. And that was just the start of it. After that, he, he continued on and uh, he saved his country. He's, he's, he's Korea's greatest hero. There's over a hundred monuments built in his memory because of what he managed to do. And he was an incredible leader and, 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 uh, and, a, and a very good human being. And a lot of Koreans look to him for inspiration on how to be, how to be better towards uh, each other and you know, how, how to basically uh, overcome adversity. Um, and you know, I think he's, it's, his story is a very important one, especially with everything that's going on right now, I believe. How do you run into it? Because, I mean, uh, it's, uh, I understand he's sort of a national hero in Korea, but unless you are Korean or you grow up uh, within that cultural context, it's not exactly, a, you know, you drop his name and everybody over dinner goes, of course, clearly. You know, it's, it's not a, it is a well-known story in a particular corner of the world. It's not necessarily a mainstream history that you hear everywhere. 
How did you how did you run into that story to begin with? Taekwondo when I was oh, when so I was that's younger. The Korean yeah, angle, yeah, yeah. Right? So right. I took Taekwondo very seriously. I joined my school's sparring team. We actually trained in Korea one summer, but that's not when I discovered uh Yisun Shin. Uh it was actually about eight years after I stopped training in Taekwondo. Um I got into uh I discovered Yisun Shin through this really wonderful uh Korean drama called The Immortal Yisun Shin, which you can watch on Amazon and I highly recommend it. It's 104 episodes and it's just beautifully researched beautifully uh put together the actors do such a wonderful job it's just an amazing show once i discovered this i was just so enthralled by it and i was just so mesmerized by everything that went into the show and it was right around this time that 300 was uh made into mm -hmm. uh, a movie and i had read the graphic novel maybe a year before that and i was thinking to myself well you know 300 itself, the graphic novel, was based off of um, uh, a movie that Frank Miller had seen in the 50s called The 300 Spartans. Mm -hmm. And after that, he had read a couple books about about the Spartans. So I was like, well, you know, if he could do it, there's no reason why I can't. And uh, so I dedicated a lot of time to, to doing research on the subject matter because I really wanted uh, to know what I was writing about. But on top of that, I really wanted to provide a, a unique uh, perspective that would differentiate me from uh, what the TV show did, the story that I was telling from, from the TV show. And uh, that, that, uh, that took a long time. And it Congrats. took a lot of studying of, of, of comics as well. It wasn't just the research of the history, but also following trends in comics, looking at different artists, seeing what's hot, seeing what, what people really kind of go for, you know? Yeah, because in that sense, you know, by doing a historical comic book, you have to do research in a bunch of different areas because you need to know the history from A to Z, but also you need to know the the kind of art that would be most conducive to telling a story like that. The business side, you know, there are like there are probably 72 different layers that you need to know from uh, how to handle your distribution to how to get people to know about it, to telling a great story, to finding an artist whose vision I mean, there are so many steps to that process that it's um, it's pretty intense. So I found it funny, by the way, that, you know, when you show me, I noticed that, you know, you pick an artist that's uh, from Italy. And so, you know, thanks to the joys of globalization, you can have, uh, you know, grab a guy from Italy to write, a, to illustrate a story about a Korean hero from the 1500s. It's like... And I believe what I don't remember if he was for all of these episodes, but for one of them, there was your colorist was from South America. And he's like, you have this international theme joining up on this. That's uh, to kind of put this vision that you have for this historical event into reality. That's pretty trippy. I didn't even know that, by the way, is another thing you taught me. I didn't even know that there was a artist and a colorist, that like the person adding the color is not necessarily always the same that actually does the drawing. That those can be the same person, but often are not. And uh, that I was like, oh, I did not know that about that game. So yeah, the assembling of the team in itself must have been a pretty trippy experience to find the people that you can work together with, find people that are also, they have to do the research to know what it looked like. Because, you know, you can describe it like you're writing a novel, 
but then the artist needs to be the one who also has that understanding of what does it mean to show a, a battle between uh, Japanese and Korean ships in the f- late 1500s. What do they look like? What do their uniforms look like? What do the people... It's an intense kind of work that goes way beyond just, uh, hey, draw me this character. Character is cool, but you know there are so many layers to it. Again, this is the kind of thing that in cinema... There are entire departments of people to take care of it. There's the part that, you know, does the historical research on the clothing and the one that does the historical research on... And, you know, you guys do it as a, a few people affair. But, um, but yeah, that's... I, needless to say, due to the fact that I'm so passionate about history, I'm extremely fascinated by this idea of telling history through comic books, you know, precisely because if you have to do a movie about each historical event you want to cover, you're talking about it just can't be done. You know, you're lucky if you'll ever get to do one or two in your life, whereas with comic books, you really can. You can tackle those subjects. You can create that vision. And uh, did you find any particular challenge? I mean, because, of course, you cannot just tell history as is. You know, then you have to fictionalize a little to make the story run smoother. And so you have to find a balance between uh, history as is and uh, your own creative spin on it. And the meeting, you know, you don't want to go too far in the creative spin and you lose any historical basis, but you don't want to just stick to the history in a way that may be clunky in terms of storytelling. Um how did you find that process of just negotiating the how much you stay loyal to the story as told in the books versus how much you add elements to it all? Well, first I want to go back and I want to uh, comment on something you, you had mentioned, you know, that uh, I hired an international team and how yeah. technology has allowed something like this to take place. <laughs> Thanks to the global recession we experienced back in 2008, I was actually able to hire <laughs> everybody from across these different countries. Right. Um, and that that speaks to the idea that you never want to let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> <Right>. There are <laughs> opportunities in it. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's kind of the thing is, um, you know, you, you look at uh, situations, you know, particularly like right now, I'm in this position where my way of earning money through what I do is by going to conventions and selling books. So right now I can't do that. So I look at different ways like, okay, I can't do this. So what can I do? How do I, how do I move forward? So that kind of speaks to, to, to that. And, and I would, I I hope at some point I'll get a chance to tell you guys uh, more about the creators of the book, but Mm -hmm. um, you had specifically asked about the challenges that we faced prior to hiring the artist. What I actually did part of my research, I, I, I compiled information. And um, I created an image manual. So what I did was I, I bought, I purchased a bunch of books on the subject matter. There's an excellent writer. His name is uh, Stephen Turnbull. And uh, he's, he's, old, he's a well-known historian. And he wrote so many books about the samurai and particularly about the Imjin War, mm-hmm. um, which is the, the conflict between uh, Korea and Japan in the late 1500s and China as well. And... Uh, he provided uh, a, he provides a lot of visuals in his books, not just of uh, authentic armor or uh, uh, ships, but he also hired illustrators who who captured stuff. Another thing I did was I I took stills from the TV show um, just to kind of give a sense of like 
you know, how ships would look, how formations looked and things like that. So the TV show helped in the sense of giving us uh, some I, 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 some things on what we could do, but also what we couldn't do because we couldn't rip off the show. That's That was something that we really needed to kind of stay away from. And you mentioned a really, really good point about how faithful we are to history. Well, the truth is, is that I don't think anybody can be 100% faithful to history if no. we weren't there 500 years ago to Absolutely. actually see what was happening. History is always written by by the victors, right? Yeah. So in this case, what we really wanted to focus on was making sure we got our facts right on the important events that took place, the things that are written about. So the battles, we want to make sure that they're portrayed in the most accurate way. Um, we want to make sure that uh, they're engaging. And that's not something you really want to um, skew anyway, because the fact sure. of what actually happened, all these battles were incredible, um, right. especially the Battle of Myongyang. He had, uh, Yi Sun-shin had 12 ships, and he was up against uh, a, a, the entire Japanese Navy, 333 ships. And he, like, completely beat them into the ground. He killed 18,000 men in uh, just two hours and killed 18,000 uh, 18, soldiers and sank a third of the entire Japanese fleet. And, uh, you know, you can't make this stuff up. This actually yeah. happened. And the more accurate you can get it, you know, and the way I did it was I always cross-referenced because um, aside from Stephen Turnbull, there was another book written by uh, an author named uh, Samuel Howley. Um, and his book is just called The Imjin War. Fascinating book. And what he decided to do was he wanted to write a book originally about Yusin Shin, but uh, as he continued to do his research, he discovered that there were so many heroes um, mm-hmm. during this war from uh, both the Je- uh, from both the Chinese and uh, Korean side, and even the Japanese side, that he wanted to 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 bring as much of that into the table as he could, and uh, he created a just a phenomenal book that uh, just really hones in and it's not translated, which is great because it's easy to digest. Whereas some of the information like Yusun Shin's personal diaries and his um, memorials to the to the court, those were all translated um, by uh, Yonsei University in Korea. So it's it's kind of hard to, you know, when, when they use words like, you know, that rascal, you know, or, you know, some, so, course, some words that were just kind of like, well, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they sound goofy if you translate them Yeah, so you just kind of, cro- I cross-referenced everything and I looked at it. So in some cases, someone would say, well, Eastern Shin had 30 ships and the Japanese had 100 ships. And then someone else would say, oh, he had uh, two ships and the Japanese had 5,000 and right. you just kind of try and find a middle ground where the 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 data lines up, you know, and that's that's where I think the research really uh, that's where you want to be spot on with the research. You want to be somewhere in the middle. Well, that makes perfect sense. And, and I agree. You know, I've been thinking about stories that I would like to tell. And, you know, I told the story as history as much as I you can put it together centuries after the fact in History on Fire. But then I'm thinking, if I were to tell the same story in a more narrative fashion, inevitably, you have to fill in the blanks. Even if you stay faithful to the known facts, there's so much that is unknown in between the known facts, that inevitably you need to create something, you know. Maybe you know why a certain person, or rather, maybe you know that, like, if I think, for example, one of the stories that I've been loving so much, the Caravaggio one, you know, you know that the guy is hostile to law enforcement and hostile to the church. And, you know, there is something there, but we don't know why. Historically, that information is lost. 
And so if I think if I want to tell it in a narrative way, I have to come up with something plausible that fits within this true historical data that we have. But we're missing the other part. And so that's the creative element of figuring out, okay, then give him a backstory, create something that... And and I love that. And I never had a problem with that because, you know, to me, it's like anybody who goes to the movies or read a comic book or consume any kind of creative uh, art form and expect it to be 100% history, it's ridiculous. It, that's not what it's designed for. Never mind the fact that history is not even 100% history because you have like you have historians who are taking educated guesses half of the time about look what's happening and, right now. Just as, right. just if you look at how information is relayed mm-hmm. to us today, everything you can't you can't believe anything that's really going on. Absolutely. So even history in the strictest sense is debatable how much is really happening or how much is not. And if you add a little bit of a narrative spin, inevitably, and that's part of, like, one of my favorite TV series ever was um, HBO's Rome. You know, oh, Rome yeah, that was fantastic. Phenomenal. And do they change some of the story? They stay mostly faithful, but do they change some of the storyline or the biographies of the characters? Of course. But it's all plausible. You know what I mean? It's like it fits with, it fits within what we know about Roman society of the time. Both the stuff where they stay literal through the sources and the stuff where they embellish a little. I don't have a problem with it. You know, you want uh, the real history, you read some boring textbook on it or you watch a documentary. That's what does it. But anything that has a more creative spin, I think it's understood that you're not supposed to be literal in your telling. Not in everything, at least. You know, there's, there's a balance there. And as you say, in some cases, history is so awesome in itself that you don't even need to improvise that much. You don't even have to embellish that much. But other aspects, you know, to make the story flow from point A to point B, you may need to. And that's fine. And that's not a problem at all. Going back to what you were saying about Caravaggio and, Mm -hmm. you know, his ambitions never really being known. See, what's great about history is it's a a record of what human behavior led to, the kind of events that moved humanity forward. Mm -hmm. And when you look at anything that a person does, you can relate to it instantly. Someone out there can relate to it in some form or fashion. And I think that's what makes these type of stories interesting. But on top of that, that's what allows um, us as storytellers to be creative, is Mm -hmm. to look at these characters and think to ourselves, if I was Yisimshin or if I was Caravaggio, what would my intentions be if I looked at the, the scenario of what was going on then? You know, right. what, what would I what would be the purpose of my my ambitions? And that's where you get that's where you can get creative. And that's where you can come up with some really interesting ways to to move the story forward and to explore topics that can be related to um, even with what's going on in today's world. Absolutely. I think you're entirely right. And that's what's interesting about history, that you see things that are familiar, that you recognize yourself in, but in a completely different context. Or, or rather, mostly different context, you know. The, but, you, but you do see some uh, enduring themes there, which is uh, quite awesome in itself. How long have you been uh, with this particular, I guess, though, even though it's many different issues and multiple graphic novels already, how long, how long ago was it when you published the first one? Uh, 2009. So 2009 was 
volume, like the first? The very first single issue. And um, I had actually uh, completed it on the anniversary of the battle that took place in that first issue. Sweet. And Perfect. <laughs> it's, it's really, it was, it, was, it was interesting how things kind of unfolded with that. To say that it was uh, the amount of stress and the amount of uh, just heartbreak I've experienced with this book throughout the years is just tremendous. And I envy so many creators out there who have the ability to, uh, to jump from one project to another because you can never have... Uh, yourself fully set up to to have your heart broken <laughs> with one project, but I think that there was something to be said about it because uh, enduring those hardships um, made me focus even more on it. I don't think there are many creators out there who uh, find it wise or can even find it opportunistic to just focus on one thing, and that was always something that I questioned. You know if rather than try and write seven comics at once in order to make a living. Cause sure. you know, that's what you have yeah. to do. If you're going to be a professional writer, you either got to have a day job on the side or you got to be writing like eight to 10 comics. Right. But because I, I, I developed a real passion for getting my book out there directly to the customers um, and to my readership, um, I, I was able to, to find a way to leverage that um, and, mm -hmm. and still continue to be my own boss with it. And really focus on just simply the the writing of that one that one story. I'm grateful for the fact that I did it, but you know, at the same time, it's uh, it, it it's just you have so much writing on this one on this one project, sure. and it really is sort of like my my opus. How much do you have left now? Because I know so you completed. That's a great question. We actually have we have three issues left, okay. um, but then after we're done with those three issues. I decided to get ambitious, and w this was always kind of like my plan. I want to do a, a prequel trilogy um, okay. that focuses on uh, Yisun Shin's uh, earlier days, but um, f told from the perspective of the story's villain, so that we learn his his story too. And it's more of a of a character study than it is sort of like a historic retelling. I mean, certainly sure. historic events take place, but it's 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 switching the the tables around and turning the hero in, into somewhat of a uh, of an antagonist to, right you know he's not going to be seen as an antagonist but of course he'll be an antagonist to the bad guy you know who, the, who yeah of course yeah yeah so and i and i've just learned so much and i've um i i've enjoyed really working with my co-writer on the series uh, david anthony Kraft, who's uh mm -hmm. who's a, a huge contributor to comics uh he worked directly for stan lee uh at marvel and uh roy thomas and uh, he's just done a tremendous amount of work in the industry. He, he did uh, the original adaptation for the Beatles uh, comic. Uh, he ushered in some huge contributors to comics like George Perez, Brian Stelfreeze, a bunch of other creators. And he, he's done stuff for Marvel, DC. He's been all over the place. You know, I was put in touch with him back in 2009, and I, I, I brought him on board because I needed somebody to really tell me where I was going wrong. When I say heartbreak about this, the reason why I, I chose to self-publish this was not because I, I wanted to, it was because I had no other options. When I originally had this, I, I submitted it to all these different publishers and you know they all, they all turned it down because the subject matter was not interesting. To, it's not that it wasn't interesting. I think that it was challenging. You, know, yeah. you take something with a, a foreign name like Yi Sun Shen, yeah. how do you sell that? 
you know? It's hard to market, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's hard to market. And I didn't understand that at the time. I'm like, I have a great looking book. What's wrong with it? So yeah. I, I asked right. the publisher and, and he told me, he told me exactly what I needed to hear. And I was like, I need an editor. I need somebody who's going to tell me when I'm not doing something right. He not only showed me what to do, but he really put himself into, he really invested himself into this in terms of his time, in terms of his commitment, and in terms of his experience. You know, this book would not be what it is without him. He is, of course. He is just as much Yusin Shin as I am. He taught me everything I know about comics and everything I know about publishing. And right. uh, together, you know, we've, we've, we've turned this series into uh, a book that sold over 100,000 copies outside of the direct market. So we never had real serious direct market distribution. Which is insane because those numbers are not what you get from independent creators. You know, it's like when you could talk about comic books, that kind of like that's I don't want to exactly say unheard of because I'm sure somebody somewhere has done it. Yeah, there are guys who do it. Like yeah, so, but so it's, not com- it's, it's not a it's not a common safely thing. say that it's, it's not, not a common thing yes. to be able to sell that much. <laughs> so that means that you guys did a lot of things right to make that happen. And not just, you know, A, you need to have a killer product, otherwise it's never going to sell like that. But also there's so much other like work behind it. I mean, one of the things you hinted at earlier was the fact that a lot, because yeah, okay, so let's say you create this amazing product. The artist did a phenomenal job, colorist did great, the storytelling is good, uh, it comes out on the right shiny paper, everything looks great, but nobody knows about it. It's like, how do you let, how do you get an audience, especially now? when there are 10 gazillion people all trying to sell their creations out there, whether in the form of podcasts or movies or music or something, there's such a flood of stuff that's created. The hard thing is some, in some ways not creating it is then getting an audience because it's like you can have the greatest thing on earth, but if nobody knows about it, it doesn't really help you to sell. And so because you did not have Marvel that, you know, whatever they sell, they are going to do well because there's an audience that's going to look at the Marvel catalog and whatever they sell, they are going to buy. You go with your name. That's it. And and your and the other members of your team with their name. But, you know, how many people can you reach via Facebook? You know what I mean? It's like only so many. That's not that much. You know, you can get something, but... So the way you went about it, so if I understood correctly, is you just put in the miles of going to comic book convention after comic book convention after comic book convention, putting up a boot, showing the art, and in the hope that as somebody's walking along, they take a peek and go like, wow, that look good. Let me talk to this guy. What is the, oh, you know, it's three bucks for an issue. Let me check it out. Is that the process? Is that kind of how you went about it as far as making the sales? I live for that. You know, mm-hmm. I, di- I didn't realize how much that's my job. That's the thing that I, I, I love doing the most because it, it's instant gratification. You, you get, um, and, and here's the thing, I never, I, I, I knew the moment that I created this book, I think it was almost fate in the sense that I, I knew I couldn't sit back and wait for people to come to me because... No one wants to know. Everybody who sees Yi Sun Shin is thinking, what's a Yi Sun Shin? So the fact that I'm there, I can tell them right away. And I know that this is a story that people are going to like. I know it. So I always start by asking people, hey, can I tell you about my book? And I give them a free bookmark because usually if you give someone a free bookmark or something, 
you already kind of have a 50% chance of them saying yes to you. If you can get someone to say yes to you on, on, on that, then you, you might have some luck. But regardless of the fact that if they don't buy your book, they still walk out of there with some information about it so that they might have some memory of it later. That's sort of like my hook, but I never really had sales experience. For me, it was always just the passion of, I want right. to tell you about my book. I want you to see it because... You know, I, my team and I, we, we slaved over this. This is our blood, sweat, and tears. And it's, it's just such an exciting experience to be in front of people. And you're 100% right. It's not the same thing being on Facebook. If we want to look at what's going on right now during this pandemic, last year, I sold over 20,000 books in, in 2019 alone just from going to conventions. And if you look at what's happened since this pandemic, my sales have just basically flatlined because I can't engage people. And I think that's yeah. a very important aspect of what I, I do. Even when you're working, uh, when you have the muscle of Marvel or DC behind you, the reality is that it's not you as the creator that's really selling necessarily. It's the actual property. Now, there are some creators out there that are really hot. And anytime they do something and they put sure. it out there, someone's going to buy it right away yeah. just because they see that name. Yeah. Um, probably more so now today than it was ever before in, in the history. But I always look to Stan Lee because, you know, he was a very bombastic, uh, well-spoken marketing guru. And he always wanted, he had this philosophy of more people should be reading comics and as someone who's had the uh, the honor of meeting Stan and has had the an even greater honor to, the fact that he endorsed Eason Shin and by writing the forward to the first trade, um, you know, I, I one of the things he told me himself is, you know, when you do what you love, it's no longer work, it's play. Right. And, you know, just looking at, you know, what you've done with your podcasting, see, like you, you mentioned how it's easy to just get on. Well, yeah, of course it's easy to get on. You know, I have my own YouTube channel, but growing that audience and building on that that's where the work comes in and that's yeah. where the and it's it's not always rewarding at first it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of of, of your time which essentially is money because you could be doing yeah. something else you know you could take your your time and invest it into building uh, a house or sure. you know whatever you know so it's just anything bringing it back to what you were saying it's uh it's an investment of your all of your of, of your will and when you mm -hmm. can bring that energy out to people people will respond to that because we need that and i think that's the one thing that we're really missing right now um in our isolation and the, the most unfortunate thing about this virus is that there is no answer i think that the right answer is that we do need to kind of keep uh keep these events closed for now until uh, a safe way to, to open them back up uh, is presented to us. Right. And it's it's a hard reality to face, but you know, at the same time, it's uh, given me a chance to, to, it's opened up doors. I mean, I probably wouldn't be here right now talking to you if it wasn't for, for what's going on right now. I like your silver lining approach. <laughs> That's good. You have, you have to see it that way. Cause I mean, like, look, yeah. you know, the, the, the mass gatherings will return at some point, you know, it's just, sure. it's just life, you know? How do, actually, that's something that Savannah was asking me earlier on, like, how do some of the people, like she says, some people she see, they post a lot of their art on Instagram, or they have like webtoons or things like that. Are they, as far as your understanding of the art world away, are they able to make money? Do they just do Patreon? Do they do, you know, what's the, 
is the advantage of doing print like you did the fact that then you can kind of hit the miles at the conventions and meet in this mass gathering versus the web version you know theoretically can get into any household but also you can get anywhere really because unless they click on it there's no reason to find you like what's the how do some people like the ones who are not doing what you do of just showing up at every convention putting up the boot and there how do they do it is there is there much of a market for the kind of online uh, web comics or what's what's the gig with that i believe there is um i know there are many creators out there who have turned to webtoons and um, have found great success with it very few have managed to turn it into something that's like a full-time thing i think it's a more of a complimentary Gotcha. Um, income. Digital is absolutely a, a very important aspect of the comics in general. Now, for me personally, I think I've just been cursed with uh, the fact that I, I have to be in person in order for my book to sell and people need the physical copies. It's just different. I think when people are looking at stuff online, when we, when we spend our, our time looking for stuff online, we're typically looking for exactly what we want and that's that's it. We might get distracted from time to time because we come across something that catches our attention, but primarily speaking, we're, we know what we want when we go on the internet and what kind of information we wanna absorb while we're, sure. we're spending there. So, and the same thing goes for Webtoons. I mean, you know, uh, there are creators out there who can go out uh, on, on and just know how to work these platforms. I mean, the amount of innovation that I'm seeing from a lot of creators today and how they utilize social media in order to build their audiences and make, uh, you know, supplemental and even primary income is just incredible. There's some guys who are doing just just absolutely killing it on Kickstarter. I don't know if you know uh, Brian Polito. He cre he's the creator of Lady Death. Mm -hmm. Just every time that guy does a Kickstarter, it just blows my mind. He, he makes like hundreds of thousands of dollars on his Kickstarters and just absolutely anni annihilates. It. And, you know, talk about somebody who knows how to how to freaking sell. But even then, you need to people need to already know you in order for that to have happened, you, you know. So it's kind of a, like, how did he build this reputation that way? He was definitely on the con circuit. I haven't really had a okay. chance. I've nerded out in front of Brian a couple times, more from on a, on a business side. And, you know, uh, he's always very busy when he comes to conventions. So it's, I've never really had a, a formal introduction to him. But he's always been somebody that I've kind of, like, admired. And I look at him as sort of like, wow, this is like the Michael Jordan of what of we do. You know? That's awesome. <laughs> And as you say, it's a multi-level game because yeah, you need to know the you need to be a researcher, you need to be a storyteller, you need to be a good uh, team member and team leader to be able to assemble it all a, team, a group of people that are gonna work well together. You need to know how to do business in terms of you know distribution and publisher and everything else. And then you need to know how to do business in that level and literally being the guy with the copy in your hands and be able to pitch it to people. So it's like you have to put about 12 different hats in your job <laughs> to, to, to get that done. It's, uh, so that's quite phenomenal in itself. And, uh, and I guess, yeah, the, the challenge now is how to do it with the pandemic, how to do it with, you know, hopefully things is up soon but we have no idea it could be a while so figuring out alternate paths to get your job still done that's the tricky part 
Well, you know, the one thing that's really helped out is that we've we've primarily, Deck and I decided to focus primarily on the production of the book right now and to just kind of mm-hmm. take a pause on the sales aspect of it because okay. there's really nothing we can do right now anyway. No. And it's just really kind of, so many of my conventions were canceled and there was a point in May where they said that uh, Tampa Bay Comic Con got the green light to go. I decided to book a table at this show and I was getting really excited to go back to work and to to get going again. And then about two weeks before the show was supposed to take place, actually three weeks, there was the huge spike in Florida where they started to see about 5,000 cases a day. And sure enough, we got an email that the the show was canceled. And and after that point, I, I felt a sense of relief because now I kind of realized, okay, you know what? I'm 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 pissing against the wind here, you know, just yeah. trying to get back into work, trying to get back into the flow of what I wanted to do. But I really do believe that we're in whatever cycle we're in right now for a reason. And we can all choose to look at it as things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. And they could. You don't know. Sure. But that doesn't sure. mean that it has to get worse for you. There's there's lots okay. of things you can always do to improve yourself and it's not easy you know in some cases there are going to be people who can't and there's going to be people who are hurt and that's where the tragedy comes in is that we we worry about other people especially people who have compromised immune systems and and you know especially you know with education having this huge mandate of like we need to send kids back to school because on one hand you know, you kind of understand it, you know, even sure. uh, the other day I was I was talking with uh, someone and they were telling me that even during World War II, there was a big tuberculosis outbreak. And oh, yeah. even back then, they were sending kids to school because it's such an, an integral part of their development. But at the same time, I think the attitude back there is like, ah, we're going to make six or seven kids because three of them probably <laughs> won't make it. So, you know, two band for team was gone, but we still got uh, Joe and Charlie, so we're okay. You know, one or two dead kids. Sure, why not? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think we all look at what's what's going on right now and we worry about people, you know, and uh, I, I think everybody wants this to to end equally you know no matter where your political alliance falls it's everybody wants it to to kind of uh go away but i think what's important is having a sense of adaptability and that was something that i i think yishun shin was remarkable at doing was adapting to his environments and understanding like nobody wanted to get rid of the japanese more than him and he had to suffer this invasion for seven years and he gave his life to end this war um eventually but uh you know understanding that he couldn't just go to to battle right when he saw them even though he had this huge desire to just go out there and and kick their asses he had to study their movements he had to really pay attention to what was going on and i think right now i need to be more of the silent observer and really you know, paying attention to what's going on and really listen to what other people have to say and learn from other people. I think that's that this is a great this is a great time to do all that. For those of you guys listening, uh, where would be the best place for them to check out your work? And then, uh, you know, hopefully they dig it and then they want to buy it. Where? What's the website? What's the best way for it all? You, by the way, have a stellar preview of the books that you guys put together and put on YouTube. That's beautiful. I'm going to put the YouTube link in the episode notes too. 
what's the kind of one-stop catch-all type of thing for you? Uh, absolutely. So uh, you can go to uh, www.eastonshin.com. That's Y-I-S-O-O-N-S-H-I-N.com. That's our website. And uh, if you go there, uh, and anything you buy right now includes uh, 20% discounts on everything, plus free shipping. And on top of that, the cherry on top is that I sign everything you buy for me. So, Sweet. Yeah. Any, I, my, I, I'm never going to lose an opportunity to gain a, a reader, even if it means that, uh, you know, I literally have to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine how many times you had to spell Yisun Shin. Because every time you'll say it, you'll, the, the next question will be, what is it today? Why I S O N S H I N? Okay, next. I can probably imagine tens of thousands of times that spelling has gone through your lips. So that's okay. So that's awesome. For oh, one quick. So for those of you guys who like to check out the work, a I super strongly recommend it. Both the story and the art are really beautiful. I think uh, good warning is due. It's heavy right i mean you make game of thrones look like disneyland by comparison <laughs> some of your storylines man they are dark oh absolutely it's absolutely really dark yeah and you know it, it's funny because uh when uh, giovanni timpano our italian based artist uh first came on the book i i told him that i wanted it to be bloody and everything that the korean drama was not he was, he had some apprehensions in some some uh, some areas especially in some scenes that he had, were much more uh sexually explicit but um I'm very grateful because he trusted mine and Dax's uh direction and and vision for this and and he complied um after we beat him relentlessly with the whip <laughs> <laughs> the bullet <laughs> but uh you know it's uh it is a graphic book but it's also um not done for the sake of grabbing your attention. It's it's there to to really show that, you know, war is an ugly thing, even though we, mm-hmm. we present it in a very beautiful and lush style through Adriana de los Santos's uh beautiful colors, uh, you know, we, we really want uh to 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 tell the most dramatic story we, we can. And um you mentioned before about even the lettering, you know, Joel Saavedra, oh, yeah. who's also based in South America uh, in Argentina, specifically, both him and Adriana are, goes through a tremendous amount of work to make sure that, uh, you know, the way that you read the book uh, is, is it flows. And that's a, that's a really difficult thing to do because it's like when you're watching a movie, it's like having the sound effects and, you know, making sure that that all comes together properly. And, um, you know, once again, just giving a shout out to my, my co-writer, David Anthony Kraft, for... Uh, you know, bringing his editorial expertise uh, to the story and making sure that everything that every to bring to help me bring out the best in everybody. Um, uh, you know, I, I really I can't, I can't do it without any of my contributors. And uh, after our fifth issue, we actually had to to change our artist. And uh, L.R. Naclius was the guy who who took on the mantle of uh, moving our story forward. And he just does a a, a phenomenal job. He really brought a, a Frank Frazetta like touch to our to our story, as if the artwork couldn't get any better uh, from where Giovanni left it. And uh, he's been with us ever since, and he's he's helping us see this through to the end. And it's uh, it's been a wild ride, and 
I look forward to continuing with it. That's awesome, man. I love uh, everything about it. I love uh, how you hustle. You know, your drive to hustle and make it happen is phenomenal. I love the product. I love, you know, this is this is absolutely great. So, and it was really inspiring for me to see kind of uh, the way another modality of uh, telling history. Um, that you know there are so many ways to go about it documentaries film podcasting books uh, whatever the way it's taught in school the way you know there are so so many different ways and comic books of course is like of course why i didn't think of that that's a great way of going about it and it's um i really really like it so that's awesome any other thing you want to throw out there before we wrap? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd, I'd like to just give a shout out to uh, some friends who, you know, helped help us get connected. Uh, Cameron Wiltshire, Afua Richardson, um, you know, thank you guys for being such great friends and for, for connecting me with uh, Daniel and yeah. uh, to all of our uh, fans and friends, you know, stay tuned. We got more in the works and uh, great things are on the horizon and Yusun Shin will emerge much stronger from, from this pandemic. And I, I believe we all will. So uh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Stay strong, everybody. Yeah. Cool, man. Thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Yeah. Well, the funky music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Towers podcast. Man, being a comic artist is hard. There's sure no is. question about it. I mean, I did a lot of comic cons back in the day, kind of when it mm-hmm. first started revving up. God, that's like eight years ago now. But my favorite part was always going to these, you know, kind of off the edge, away from where all the movie stuff was. Those those guys and ladies who had their own books, and they were trying to, you know, we always told the kids, go get the things you want, but. Each of you go spend twenty dollars down there, yep. picking something up for guys that, you know, may never make it. No, and this guy did amazing. He did such a phenomenal work. Was managed to be successful against all odds. Of course, COVID is not helping. So, no. if you guys want to check out his work, please check it out through his website. I'll put the link in the episode notes. And um, yeah, and buy some goodies because I'm sure the revenue is drying up during COVID days with no Comic Con or anything like that. The police are coming for us again. Yes, so let's run before they catch us. Let's wrap up our episode. Uh, anything else we need to say or always uh, keep it.org. Check that out. Can always uh, help somebody out. And you are there are a lot of sort of COVID related things on there today, so it's always worth a try. And you and your fellow listeners have. Donated over $160,000. Damn. Not donated, loaned. Yep. Because you pay the money and you get it back and then you loan it again. And that's it. We'll see you next time. Beautiful. So ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at RichieMon1. 
R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! In questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great. Fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're right? outro. Oh, we're out. Okay, sorry. So that's so let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me. Can you about, translate for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> That's maybe too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. Why?